Hi, my name is Jeremy Jensen, and I'm a public school educator in the Denver metro area. I'm on a quest, a quest to learn from as many educators out there as possible about the innovative approaches that are making learning authentic and meaningful. It's a very different world today than when our current education system was established, and I've been incredibly fortunate to have had opportunities to get to know some amazing educators who are working tirelessly to adapt to this new and evolving world. One common thread among these inspiring educators, I've come to find out, is their ability to balance both a passion to make progressive change with a humility and understanding that they don't have all the answers. Hence the name of this podcast, Humble Badass Educators. It's often easy to identify what's not working in our current education system, but it's a lot harder to figure out what changes really are having the most success. I invite you all to join me on this journey to hear about the secret sauce from the educators out there we're positively impacting our landscape. In fact, that's the point of this show, so that these ideas can hopefully be spread far and wide. Michael Seguero is a professional development consultant who has worked with schools across the country to support them in bringing their aspirations to life. He is a founding faculty member of the Eagle Rock School and Professional Development Center, and later returned to this organization for more than a decade as their director of professional development. Prior to that role, he worked and lived in New York City as a school leader at the School for the Physical City, an expeditionary learning school, as well as the Bronx Guild, a big picture learning school. In our conversation, Michael talks about some of the most important pieces to consider when developing teachers and leaders as they implement innovative practices. He discusses how he supports schools by taking a deep inventory of their assets rather than approaching learning from a place that focuses on filling gaps. Michael also shares about some of his excitement for his recent work in uniting innovative ideas. Michael Seguero has a deep knowledge in making change happen. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode of Humble Badass Educators with Michael Seguero. Michael Seguero, thank you so much for joining me today for Humble Badass Educators. It's great to be here. Thanks, Jeremy. Um, Tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. What makes you a badass and where does that intersect with humility? Well, um, I've been working in education since the early 90s and have uh, been part of starting a number of different schools and pushing the envelope on different kinds of student-centered, learner-centered models in there. So I think uh, aspects of that might make me a badass. It's hard to claim that. Uh, but the humility part is I think I take lots of risks and I have a high degree of failure as, as a result of many of the things I tried because I've tried so many different things. So um, I think being comfortable with a failure rate, and I don't mean failing students because I want to be in systems where students are taken care of, but I've definitely tried things that haven't worked. You've really dedicated yourself to supporting um, schools with professional development. You found a passion in that. Um, What gravitated you toward this work? For specifically about the professional development support, uh, when I was was lucky enough to be approved to start a new high school in New York City under something called the New Century High School uh, Initiative in the Bronx. I had a very clear vision and a very clear idea of where I wanted students, uh, what kind of experience I wanted them to have in the world and a very different model for education. But the one thing I did not have figured out for that school was professional development. So, uh, I felt good about working with teachers and so forth, designing the nuts and bolts, getting things started, being a leader, but I was very intimidated by providing professional development at that time. So I outsourced it 
So I would engage um, Teachers College or Outward Bound and other providers to come in and do professional development. And I felt like we were so um, pushing the envelope on what we were trying to do that none of them were satisfactory to me. So it forced me within about a year, year and a half at the Bronx Guild to develop myself as a professional developer. Uh, and, and it was very um, intimidating. I really didn't know, you know what to do about it. And I started by forming a team and having a team of folks give me some ideas about how to start. And then I accessed some uh, places like School Reform Initiative, which was previously um, another, it was another organization and they provided protocols for folks. And I could use those protocols to adapt my professional development to our needs. And then eventually I got tapped by the New York City Leadership Academy to be a lead facilitator to develop principles because I had had some track record with my own principalship. And when I got there, I had somebody who mentored me and it was like a boot camp for facilitation. And so the combination of there was a need to know for me, I had to do it for my own school, I was struggling. And then I had this opportunity in the New York City Leadership Academy. It started a whole new life for me in providing professional development. What were the things that you learned to be most effective during this time? To be unattached to people's, uh, the content, because a lot of facilitators, and this happened when I outsourced my professional development. If I wanted students out in the world, learning through internship experiences, and I had an outside provider who had doubts about that, it seemed like they couldn't help but insert the skepticism in their PD. And I swore never to do that to somebody else. So when I work with other principals, I work with lots of principals and schools that their models, I have to have some belief in them, of course, it has to resonate with me, but um, they might not be the exact model that I would do. They would never know that because I, can, I should not be a barrier to the actual leader. So I'm there, if I've chosen to engage with them, I'm there to support them. And so one of the biggest things I learned was that level of neutrality to help people um, fulfill on what their vision was and me get out of the way, but facilitate that they can arrive at decisions, become more disciplined about their conversations, uh, follow up on what they're doing. I'd say that was the top, the top skill. I learned a lot about different modalities to exercise through long convenings, like if have different experiences, group work, solo work, think time, uh, simulations and things like that, so that there's not just the one speaking to a bunch of people and thinking that you're in training mode all the time. That's probably the second biggest thing. I want to dig into some of the components um, of how you really do support schools and move them forward. But first, can you kind of give a bigger picture overview about your process in helping schools to achieve some of their goals? When, I, when a school asks me to engage with them, the first thing that I wanna know is what's their aspiration, what's their vision. So I wanna know what the final outcome is and what, what it would look like when it achieves their, their vision for perfection. Uh, and then of course I have to do some filtering and say, oh, I believe in that or I don't believe in it and then choose to engage. And then the only thing I ask them to accept on my part is to believe that a large part of what we're building can be built on their assets. So, they're accustomed 
you, the, the greatest visionary leaders might still be deficit thinkers. So a leader of a school might say, I, I just am struggling with these teachers and I, 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 need, I have this aspiration and I want them to get up to this level of competency. Can you help me? And the one part where I do insert myself is to say, trust that they have some strengths and assets and I have a methodology for growing them. And we'll go a lot further by growing those strengths than we will by then noting their deficiencies and trying to fill them in. So that's a key part to the beginning agreement. And I need that agreement in the beginning because in the very beginning, I'm doing a lot of asset inventory and observations. And, and I do require a little patience on the part of the leader or whoever engaged me for that. And, uh, but the reports, I, I uh, produce these asset-based reports and share them with the staff. People have sometimes cried at the end of these reports. They feel seen, heard, recognized. And then, I, and then I have some fairly rigorous methodologies for building on it. Um, so there's no complacency in saying, oh, we're there yet. We still have this aspiration that's been clear, that's our North Star. So then what do you do to grow and, and build out from those strengths? That requires weekly discipline in terms of meetings, commitments, next actions, uh, and then synthesizing periodically, you know, maybe every three to five weeks what we've learned so that we can keep stepping it up as we go. Say a little bit more about that first piece of helping them to establish a focus. You draw a little bit of your work on Jim Collins' hedgehog concept. Um, can you tell the listeners a little bit about this concept and, and how you utilize it? I can. Um, I will say that a majority of times, folks already have an aspiration. I might help them clarify it a little bit, but I ask them where they got that from and it doesn't require me facilitating them to find a vision. But sure. occasionally, they, some folks do want that. They say, we, we feel real good about what we've done so far, but we, we haven't really been focused. And if I want to help them find a focus, I do lean heavily on something called the hedgehog concept from Jim Collins in his book, Good to Great, where he says that if you have single-minded clarity about this thing, this strategy, that will separate you from just the good places. You, you can be great. And, the inter and that single strategy comes from the intersection of what you can be best at or your strengths, what you're passionate about. I, us I usually use values uh, to build out that one. And the third one in the business setting is what drives your um, business, like what gets you revenue. I have transformed that to, depending on the setting, but what would students get up in the morning for? What would, what would drive them to come to your school? Or what would have teachers flocking here to work here? So whatever that is, is my third circle. Uh, I have different sets of protocols for each circle. So just one of those circles can be a half day of work. And they're all from the assets and past experiences of the people that I've pulled together. And then I have a power of asset mapping protocol that I use to, to synthesize and pull it all together and find some new things that they hadn't thought about before that describe the intersection between the three. So that requires some creative thinking. The analogy that I use is uh, you could take nails and tools and lumber 
And one tendency might be to put the hammers and saws together because that fits under the category of tools. But that's not what I'm asking for. I'm asking them to take a hammer and nails and lumber, three distinct things, and brainstorm what could you create from this? And they might say we could build a house. And so that's the, that's the synthesizing activity that I lead them through to find out what their focus or aspiration could be. Generally, it's based on what they already have done. So their strengths, so they recognize that it's doable. Um, say more about your asset-based inventory. Um, in your blog that I've just read, uh, you mentioned that you take this appreciative inventory approach. It's got some stages within there. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about this approach? Yes, I think what you're referring to is appreciative inquiry is a process that can be as long as four days or can be compressed into a single day. That goes, that goes beyond just the inventory. The inventory is a very early step in these things. Appreciative inquiry, I learned it from uh, somebody, David Cooper Ryder is generally the person who's credited with this. And I know that there's others um, and there's books on this and it goes through four stages. And the first stage is to discover what your assets are. And that's when we do some of the inventorying. Uh, the second one is dreaming. And that's where we do some aspirational work. Um, the third um, is, I think it's determining. I'm actually, uh, don't have it off the top of my head. But in that one, we take the assets and the aspirations that we did in the first two stages. And we try to come up with small sub projects, little initiatives that are inspiring that we think that in the short term, they'll move us towards our, uh, our final aspiration, which might not be for five years out. And then the, the last one, uh, we map out a timeline that's more of a project management tool for mapping it out. And that whole thing describes the Appreciative Inquiry Summit. Do you have any advice for how to really draw out the most important components of, of figuring out and helping support a school through surveying and inventorying and questioning or focus groups or anything? I, the person doing the observation needs to be clear about at least a few criteria, let's say four, that are, that are observable about the aspiration. So that needs to be in the head of the person, like their note-taking system, like these four aspects are what I'm looking for. And they, could, they should have a, a catch-all for additional assets and strengths uh, that don't neatly fit into those four categories. That's, that's one thing, is to go in prepared. If you go in without that, then it's sort of random what you're writing down and it's not disciplined. Uh, the second thing is to have, I think this might be a rock climbing term, but to have soft eyes. And that is, you know, if you're on the rock, you don't want to just look at that very next, especially when you're stressed and tired, that very next crack that you're going to put your hands into. But you want to sort of gaze and be open to other possibilities. And I think you need to do that when you observe teachers in the classroom. There is so much happening inside a classroom, what's on the walls, what the students are saying, how the desks are positioned, uh, what the teacher is saying. Uh, what they've prepared, that it requires on the, on the part of the observer to stay broad in looking for things that can match the criteria that you established going into that. Uh, I've seen too often, especially when I'm training people to conduct these observations, they're super narrow about what they're looking for, not just in the criteria, but what they're looking at. 
and and not open to opportunity. And I've had to have like folks I've worked with go back into the classroom and do it again uh, because they just were not open to what was happening. How does this relate to um, David Bohm's work in On Dialogue? You had mentioned that this is kind of a forward thinking uh, method for communication that you know, is not based on criticism or fear of criticism, I guess. Um, how does this uh, tie to what you were just sharing? I do believe that a facilitator needs to create a safe container for conversations to occur that are creative and where people are non-judgmental. And I do believe that does align with his beliefs in dialogue, but that's probably as far as I know about his work. But people are so critical, often because they're self-critical. You know, it's something to have some compassion for, actually. When, when people are having a discussion and I notice that they're negative or critical, and it, and it seems like they're exuding that, I think this must be what they do to themselves. And we try to um, create an atmosphere in which we can have people really contribute to something through non-judgmental dialogue that creates something new that people can embrace and sort of tone down the negativity uh, in the room. You know, I met you, Michael, at the uh, iterative space. And would it be fair to say that you do take kind of an iterative approach uh, when you are supporting some of your schools? Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I've never used the term so much, but uh, people have called them design sprints, you know, from the outside. You had mentioned um, in your blog about the natural planning model. Is that something that you put at kind of the forefront of what you do? Yeah, the, the natural planning model, there is an iterative aspect to it. It's also my project management go-to. So that's from David Allen. David Allen, um, uh, who wrote, let me see. What is it? Getting things done. Yeah, <laughs> that's my Bible, and I can't believe I don't remember the title of it. But uh, getting things done for productivity. Anybody could use it to improve their productivity systems. I've used it for 20, 25 years. Um, he has a whole approach to how to manage a project, and essentially, um, he has dissected how a person thinks about projects that they do in their life. Like everything's a project. We're going to go out to dinner tomorrow. Uh, that's a project. And so what does the brain naturally go through when they plan that project? And so he gets you away from these business models with Gantt charts and spreadsheets and five-year business plans and gets you just to, to think in a way that's aligned with the way your brain already thinks. So you start with, well, what was the purpose? Why am I going out to dinner to be with my wife, for example? And I won't go through the whole process here, but I'll say that what it ends up boiling down to is, in the end, you have an outcome that you want. And then you can look at yourself in your current reality and you can truthfully say, I'm not there. I'm, I'm some distance from my outcome. What's the very next visible physical step I can take to get a fraction closer to that outcome? If that is the only way we think, we could probably accomplish a lot of projects that way. You don't have to have it all planned out in between. So it can be iterative. Just take the next action. So as you're working with the school, and let's say you've provided them with some tools, how do you ensure that when your time is done with them and you walk away, that this work that you've put in is kind of sustainable for them and they have the tools to continue this work? 
one thing that's built into it, I, I can't absolutely guarantee that that's going to happen. And, and it's often a problem, you know, in general with PD, um, that things don't sustain themselves. But I did take from a lot of research on PD that you needed something like, and I don't remember what the source is right now, but 300 hours of practice of some new behavior and a one to three year commitment to work on something together. So I take the combination of that 300 hour minimum and one to three years to help bake, bake it in the possibility that this will sustain itself. So I do not do one shot deliveries ever. I don't do trainings. I don't do canned professional development. I find out what their aspiration is and I ask for a one to three year commitment, depending on what the scope of their project is and really hammer on repetition and building a rhythm of new behaviors. So that I think I leave them in a much better place. At my previous workplace, uh, when I worked for a professional development center, we did have third independent third party uh, people do studies on the work that I led. And we had three of them completed and had a lot of uh, satisfaction with sustaining after we left, uh, as a re I think as a result of what we did at the front end. Can you speak a little bit more about that? Because you transitioned, you worked for Eagle Rock Professional Development Center for quite a long time. In fact, you were one of their founding staff members, correct, faculty? I was. I was on the founding team there. And then recently, in the past couple of years, right, you kind of transitioned and you're now your own private consultant uh, with your own business. Can you talk a little bit about that transition? Why did you make that transition and how is that working? I worked for Eagle Rock at two different times. So I was a founder in 1993, one on the founding team. And I was a teacher the entire time and I was a house parent. And I left in 97 and I worked in New York City for nine years. And there I uh, worked at an expeditionary learning school. Then I worked at a big picture learning school that I founded. And I also worked with the New York City Leadership Academy at that time. And then I returned to Eagle Rock to lead their national professional development. It was an amazing experience, both the early experience as a classroom teacher, really trying to build a school around how young people learn, and then later the professional development experience. The professional development experience definitely extended the resources of Eagle Rock at that time. It's philanthropically funded. They're very much focused on the school and the school success. And, I, and me and my team were out in 23 plus states supporting schools and projects around the country. Uh, so there was a bit of a stretching that occurred there with the resources, and they were very happy for me to take folks that I worked with at Eagle Rock and serve them on my own. So there wasn't, uh, I, I think today, there's, there's more of a rallying around the school. Uh, and I definitely was interested in continuing the professional development work. Uh, so, so working on my own provided that opportunity in a way that I wouldn't have had if I was also serving. I was serving as an advisor. I was playing intramurals on Wednesday. I was, you know, attending gatherings. So there was a lot of school commitments. And meanwhile, I'm flying around to different states around the country uh, that working independently better served my vision for serving these projects in school. Any big highlights from uh, your work around the country? Um, I know you've you know, been doing that in your time, both at Eagle Rock and then working in New York and then, you know, now as you're with your own consulting, you know, what, what are your biggest highlights, I guess? 
One thing that fascinates me, and I haven't really done anything about this except for connect people to one another, but one thing that fascinates me is in one space, it's not even in the state, it could be a very local region, some people have gotten very sophisticated about something, some practice, let's say capstones or exhibitions of learning. And then I'm in another region and it seems like a brand new idea there. So they're just starting out at it. They've read some things, they're excited. And you have naysayers as well there. And it, it really is a very interesting phenomenon to go from one setting where people are enthusiastic and have several years under their belt with a practice that they believe in, and then go somewhere else where they believe they've discovered it. And they're just starting out and they're going through that early process uh, all over again. It's, it's always occurred for me as a bit of a shame because people are reinventing the wheel a lot in this country. They are doing a lot of work. Now, some of it has to be reinvented because it needs to be contextualized locally. However, while I firmly believe in that, and that's why I take an asset-based approach, I think the amount of local contextualization that needs to occur can be overestimated. It's, it's not quite as much as they think, and they can use and adapt a lot of the tools that are available and put them in play. So um, that's one thing that strikes me. There's, uh, there's always been, it, probably because of the audience I work with, very progressive education, there's always been a pushback on standardized testing and coming up with your own performance-based assessments in local places. Uh, there's, there's uh, for years now, there's been a huge equity focus. So when I work on college and career readiness in Southern California, it's not enough to say, I'm gonna get X percent of my students into college, but how many of your African-American students are you gonna get into college? You have to have an equity focus and name the groups that you're working with. Uh, and that's been woven in more and more with groups that I've been working with. Can you share a little bit more? You already mentioned that you were a founding principal director of a big picture school in New York. Yeah. Um, what's your approach to leadership? Well, one is with the aspects that I believe in, the vision aspects that I firmly believe need to be in place. And I, I stole this term from the founders of Big Picture Learning, Elliot Washer and Dennis Blickey, uh, don't backslide. So there's tremendous, tremendous pressure to revert to the norm when you're doing something unusual. And it's as long as I have the superintendent's support or, you know, like the, the system has said, you may run the school based on what you just presented, then it's my job to fend off the doubters. Now, there's a whole bunch of other areas to be flexible about. And, and, and there's tremendous opportunity for flexibility and input and evolution. But I'm talking about some core pieces of the vision. Like we do believe students can learn through real world current experience. The doubters are everywhere, including on your own staff. So even when I go through a hiring process and teacher candidates are enthusiastic about this vision and even during their hiring process and they're being genuinely truthful. I do not doubt their sincerity, but they got motive, they got captivated by something. They, within, you know, a couple of months go, I don't know about this. This is, wow, way out there, way more than I thought. 
and and the leader has to say well that's it's what we're doing i will buffer you from any concerns as long as you're doing your job i'm not going to i'm going to protect all my staff from anything let's say the superintendent coming into the building might say i'm going to say that if it's on me it's on me and i would do everything including test results i didn't hold my teachers accountable for that i hold them accountable for what our internal standards of competency and practice were but for because they were doing the model that we presented if one class of students didn't do well that was on me so uh not only did i have to not backslide protect the vision i had to serve as the buffer and the person to suffer consequences should the powers that be have an issue with what was happening and i, I believe that through the years let's say at the bronx guild that is what i did one of the first things I read when I logged onto your website and looked into your blog, um, you have this quote by Lao Tzu. Um, I I'd like to read it. And I just want to hear why this quote like, kind of resonates with you so much. But uh, it was the first thing I read. A leader is best when people barely know he exists. Of a good leader who talks little, when his work is done, his aim fulfilled, they will say, we did this ourselves. Why was that the first thing um, on this most recent blog? Well, I think, and if, if that blog was a, was that the one about the asset-based process? Yeah, it's about facilitating a path forward. So yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that includes that asset-based process that was a, seemed appropriate at that time because um, when you build on people's assets, they don't see the improvements as coming in from the outside. They grew themselves. And, uh, if any anything like if two years from now we're better than we were two years ago and i could point to that with a particular teacher i can i can also draw the line back to where they had that kernel that strength to begin with that we grew upon i can say you know that's because of your experiential education background that we've gotten this far and so that just seemed to overlap very nicely with the asset-based approach where anyone in the school could see the source of the improvement of having come from themselves. Right now you're working with our four um, education reimagined. Is that right? Do you do some work for them? I do. I am, I am retained by three organizations uh, full time. And then education reimagined is a fourth organization that does not retain me, but they, uh, we do projects together now and then. And I just wrapped one up. The last one I did ended in August. Can you share a little bit about what Education Reimagined is and what work you do with them? Education Reimagined, I hope I, you know, I don't represent them, so I hope I do them justice, but they have a very uh, radical belief in everything learner-centered and building everything around learner-centeredness. A, a, a contribution, that they distinctly make to the field that I think is not made by other organizations is they name that as a paradigm shift because they, sh they can write up a list of a number of things that you might say falls under learner-centered, but if it's done in a school that still has a school-centered mentality, it distorts it. So um, you could have, open-walled education seems learner-centered but if it's just kids going through a scope and sequence on a computer 
you know, just not with teachers, then it's fairly school-centered, not learner-centered. So one of the things that they do really well is they have convenings that help catalyze that paradigm shift. They, they teach about what's the nature of a paradigm shift to begin with, and then talk about, well, what are the elements of your current experience and what is the paradigm that you're operating in now? And then they scaffold going through different experiences to produce really fairly reliably a paradigm shift by the end of their events so that you can see that learner-centered has its own set of distinctions and ways of looking at the world. That's a unique offering from Ed Reimagine. They do other things too, like they set up intervisitations with schools so that you can look for learner-centeredness at that school. They produce resources. And the last project I was on was to help develop a, a pathway for North Carolina uh, schools to take this learner-centered, equity-centered approach in their own local context. You do some work with the National Alliance uh, Math Literacy for All. Um, yep. Tell a little, a little bit about what work you all are doing to support math education currently. So this is an interesting and, and also unique project. Uh, the history is that there, there is an organization called the Algebra Project that was founded by Bob Moses. Bob Moses is one of the leaders in the civil rights movement and helped drive uh, through the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Commit Committee in the 60s uh, what they call the Freedom Summer and voter registration in Mississippi at the risk of their lives. He was also eventually a math professor. And he took his grassroots, bottom-up organizing methodology to figure out a way to engage young people to develop their math literacy skills. And one of the unique things about his practice is that he recognized that when people present math to students, they're talking a certain way. And he labels that talk like symbolic talk. You're jumping to the X's and Y's and Z's of things. And that's symbolic talk. And even if you don't get to the symbols, there's still sort of feature talk. You're talking about the features of math. There's not really a recognition amongst teachers that they're speaking a different language. And his methodology is start with people talk. Start with the way people talk when they come into the classroom and they just share an experience that they've had. And then you start from there and build up from people talk. You can draw what you're seeing and then you start translating people talk to feature talk and then feature to symbolic talk. So he's been doing this for years, I think since the 70s, and has had an impact, a profound impact on places all over the country. And then the National Science Foundation a few years ago came up with new big ideas they were pursuing. And one of them was forming alliances. And they put out a grant uh, request for proposals to fund people that would form a network or what they call an alliance that would have a profound impact on broadening participation in STEM education. So Bob called all, you know, he, it's, he's like Johnny Appleseed. He's, he put all these seeds all over the country from Mississippi to Los Angeles to Ohio. And he called them and he says, what do you think about us forming an alliance that is committed to math literacy for all, for the least, for the most underperforming students, those most in need 
and, and uh, pushing both for better education, but also for making quality education a constitutional right. So there's a lot of advocacy also that's part of this group. And this group came together. There's something 30, 40 organizations that have been part of it now for three years. And I, I facilitate different projects for them. So in one case, it's about uh, anchoring and spreading the algebra project work that I just described, that particular pedagogy in Broward County in Florida amongst the schools there. And we're in four schools right now there and building out teacher competency in that case, very specifically helping teachers build their competency to increase mathematical discourse in the classroom. Uh, but then there's very different projects that helping elsewhere in Flint, Michigan, we just are building a local alliance. So the, because of the ground up, bottom up history that led to this, we believe every one of these spots should have a multi-stakeholder alliance locally that supports math education. And it has to be driven by the needs and voices of the students, their parents and guardians, community members. So we help stage um, evenings in which young people demonstrate the math competency they've achieved in a very experiential way to local community members. So that is a virtuous cycle in which community members are more invested in that this type of math education is happening in my local school. So we do, we do organizing, align, local alliance organizing as part of it. Uh, it's really too, I could, there's a dozen different kinds of projects that go on with this national work with the Alliance. And we're now applying for the grant uh, submitting in January for funding for, the, for it. I hope, uh, I hope you get it. Um, yeah, me too. Would it be fair to say that some of this work is sort of grounded in this idea too, so that we're not always reinventing the wheel, that there is support in other people, places that are doing really great, great work. So let's replicate what other places are doing. Yeah, that's a great, I love that connection. I honestly didn't make it myself, but when I said earlier that people are reinventing the wheel and they're discovering things, this really is an antidote to that, is that people are connected in network. We have for four, three or four years now been holding weekly Wednesday evening calls and have great participation and just stay connected and share resources and events all the time. So I think it does contribute to that. Michael, it's been a couple months since we've kind of chatted. Has any been anything been on your radar recently? Any projects you're working on? Anything that you're really excited about? I'd say the, a new thing that's occurred since we, we were together. Uh, I work now to support three different independent organizations who want to create something together. And uh, so Future Focused Education in Albuquerque, they're one of my three uh, partners that are in my portfolio already. But the other two, Educational Resource Consortium, they're in uh, Rhode Island, and the uh, CCE, Collaborative Center for Collaborative Education, they're headquartered in uh, Boston, but they also have a center in Los Angeles. The three executive directors there, Oscar Santos, Larry Mayotte, and Tony Monfaletto, have decided that they want to start schools around the country only upon invitation of a community and driven by the community. So it might sound odd because they, they are outsiders, but they, they have very uh, nice set of documents talking about what their beliefs are and how they would do it. But they're, they're not people that are looking for funding that will impose themselves anywhere. The community has to want them. 
And uh, so they're working very diligently in Minneapolis right now with community organizers about what's the kind of school that they want to see there. This project is called the Reciprocity Project. And uh, this is a brand new project that I'm helping facilitate its birth, basically. And uh, we took a number of different topics like racism, uh, social determinants, innovation landscape, and community self-determination. And uh, I, designed in, I designed and facilitated four separate events, one for each of those topics. And we invited stakeholders from New York City to Hawaii attended these events. And from those conversations had a facilitated uh, approach to surfacing new knowledge. That new knowledge then led to two things. A series of 10 blog posts are gonna be posted between now and the end of December that talk about what we've learned. And the second thing is the importance of convening strict focus groups. So the next set of events in early December will be an only students event, an only a community organizers event, and an only a families event. This is pretty, this is the most exciting new stuff I've been working on recently, putting this together. That's great. And it, it seems like it really follows your philosophy of listening and going into uh, a space, a community and figuring out what their needs are and how they operate and what that, how that community can be supported their own from the context of what is happening there, right? Absolutely. And, you know, in some ways it's a paradigm shift as well, because the real measure of a school success, traditionally it's, you know, some score or how, how are they doing on the tests? The reciprocity project's position is that a school is only successful to the degree that the community that it's embedded in becomes more healthy and prosperous as a result of its presence. That's the standard. What do you consider to be your best failure? My, the school that I left behind uh, in New York City did not, it, it continued for a few years, but it eventually merged with another school, another small school. In, in retrospect, even though I was no longer there, I, I consider that somewhat of a failure that it didn't sustain. Um, and I think that after I left, the pieces just weren't completely present to resist the pressure, you know, to, to the stand that I mentioned earlier. Um, and I stayed in touch with a lot of staff there. Now, one thing that's very positive about this is I'm still very strongly in touch with that team that founded and led the, Bro the Bronx Guild. And we are all each doing great work right now, completely aligned with our beliefs from that time. So in some ways, um, I don't know if that really fits best failure, but uh, there was, there's an aspect of failure there and there's an aspect of things I celebrate as a result of that is that people moved on and I think that they were touched and changed as a result of that Bronx Guild experience. And I think that was only to the betterment of education in a number of other locations around the country. Uh, so I, I do celebrate that. Um, I did a lot of uh, professional development that I wasn't happy about in my life. I don't know if any of them were best. I learned all the time. I had, um, when I went through what I called the boot camp in the Leadership Academy, my mentor was a woman named uh, Liz Gewertzman. And after 
six hours of facilitating, standing up all day with a lunch break. She videotaped the whole thing and would have me then stay after in the back room watching the videotape and, and hammering me. Why did you do this? Why did you do that? And like, and challenging it. And I always felt like I was falling short all the time. So um, that I learned a lot through that process. And I give her all the great, a tremendous amount of credit for shaping uh, that in me. I guess I, I failed out of college. You know, when I first went to college, I majored in English, never had a thought about getting into education. Uh, and I failed out there. And then um, I uh, also then went to a much later in life, went to a doctoral program in molecular and cell biology. Well, I'm not a molecular and cell biologist, so I failed at that. <laughs> so um, out of all those experiences, I did draw some lessons about what I thought it took for young people to learn. What would you give as the biggest advice for other humble badass educators? Two things that are related. When it comes to working with young people, I truly believe something Dewey said that there's no real preparation for the future. You don't know what the future is going to hold, but you have like a human being here in front of you right now. And the best thing that you could do is pull out of them that capacity to make the most me meaning out of the present moment. And in fact, that's the only true preparation for the future. I, if I could impart that upon every educator when they work with young people, that would be my greatest piece of advice. And I would turn that upon oneself as well. So my advice to an educator is to hold yourself in that way too. Not worry about ladders and where you're gonna go next and, and what your career path is, but nurture yourself to build your capacity to make the most meaning out of your present moment. And in fact, that's the best thing you can do for your career. Michael, you're a, a real inspiration. <laughs> um, I am um, so inspired by um, many of these things that you have decided to do. Um, the fact that you've like traveled this country, looking at schools, supporting schools. I have a, a huge passion and belief in professional development. I know it sometimes can get a bad rap and there's a lot of really bad professional development out there, but I think uh, you and I share like a, a really core belief in the power of that being a very transformative um, way to help schools to achieve the things that they really need to. And so I wanna thank you for the work that you're doing there. Um, I wanna thank you for your time as well today. Um, I could have probably talked with you for hours and hours and hours and, and who knows, maybe I'll hit you back up later and ask you to come back on with more questions and follow up to see uh, what new projects you're working on and, and how things are going. But um, again, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure talking with you today. Thank you, Jeremy. Thanks for doing this. I think it's such a great service, these podcasts, and I love listening to them. So thank you. Oh, it's so much fun. Thank you for tuning in to Humble Badass Educators. Again, the biggest goal of this podcast is to share the transformative ideas of what can work in the world of education. So if you enjoyed listening, please take a minute to share a link to this episode with someone you think may also be interested in hearing these ideas. If you or someone you know is also a humble badass educator, I'd love to hear from you as I continue my quest in learning about the amazing things that are happening out there right now. Know that the term educator is not just school-based. An educator is anyone that helps another person learn. 
Until next time, this has been Jeremy Jensen with Humble Badass Educators. Thanks for listening.